Welcome to the Pink Smoke Podcast. I'm John Cribbs. Joining me as always, Chris Funderburg. Hi, John. I am so happy to be here with you this morning. I'm happy to be here with you. We are here doing our podcast, which is a subscriber-supported podcast. Wanted to say thank you to all our patron subscribers who've been with us and continuing to be with us through the new year. This is about paying our writers. That's the reason that we started our Patreon campaign. This show is a bonus for supporting the writing on the website, but thank you all for listening. Yes, tonight we're not behind the Patreon paywall in order to give you a little primer on what we do and introduce you to the show. One of the problems with the show is that we've been recording it, but most people can't hear it because we intended it as a bonus for the subscribers who are supporting the writing and the writers on our site. The only reason it exists is because we wanted to be able to pay writers to write for us. And so tonight, what we're going to do is introduce you to the show a little bit. That's both explain what it is and what we do, and then also just to expand our, our consciousnesses, to give you a flavor of who we are. We're also going to give you our artwork survival kits, six artworks each, six artworks of any kind, film, music, album, painting, literature, whatever it may be. But before we get to that, John, What's the basic organizational structure of Pink Smoke Podcast? So what it is, is uh, two episodes a month of the Pink Smoke Podcast. The first one is on films, mostly new films, but we change it up every once in a while. And the other is on pulp literature. We are uh, frequently joined by guests like uh, Brian Sauer, a group of Pumpkin Speaks, and the person in the podcast, screenwriter Tom Vaughn, screencast Stephanie Crawford, uh, filmmakers Alan Cordell and Martin Kessler. Last year, we were joined by the legendary film writer Outlaw Vern. We'd love to have him back again. I agree. And one of the great things about having Vern on is we were the very first podcast appearance that the Outlaw Vern ever did. Now, traditionally, both shows have been beyond the Patreon paywall with random episodes here and there free to the public. But we're getting ready to change that up. Going forward, on the 15th of each month, we'll be releasing a single old episode from behind the Patreon paywall. Our Patreon subscribers still get early access to every episode and exclusive access to one episode a month. There's still episodes that are only available if you subscribe to the Patreon. And I, I can't emphasize this enough. We love our Patreon subscribers and have so much respect for all the support we received right from the beginning. And we're going to continue giving you as much exclusive work and early special access that we can. Uh, but we want to invite other people to join in and experience what we do. And the best way, really the only way to do it is to let people hear the show. And so that means that we're going to let some older episodes be open to general audiences. They'll be made available on iTunes, Spotify, all the places that you download your ear streaming type stuff. Okay, so for, for new listeners, for old listeners, just to go over again what we're all about, thepinksmoke.com. This is so you can understand us deeply in your heart. It's as deep in your heart as, we, as you're willing to let us go. Uh, the Pink Smoke podcast was created as a film writing website, Chris and I are incurable seekers of greatness in art. We feel as cynical and unfeeling as the world can get. I think that something that we both believe in is that films, novels, paintings, music, works of art are kind of what keep it from seeking into total bleakness. I agree. I agree. And one thing, John and I are both not natural positivists. We're not like sunny, sunshiny people. And so part of the guiding idea of though the pink smoke and what we try and do is we always feel like there's nothing less interesting than hearing about what somebody doesn't like. And we sort of have an informal policy of trying to talk to people about the art we love and get people excited for things to uh, try and open up 
doors for people to enter. If somebody doesn't like a movie we like, we're not defensive. What we want to do is find a way if we can get that person access to what we love to share it for everybody to share it and commune and experience these things. And that's also, I know for me, a lot of the writing I do on the site is trying to find a way into things I haven't liked before, you know, to give a second chance to art that its appeal or its value has eluded me that other people love. I agree. I think, you know, great film writing is exploratory. I think it's, uh, even if you, it's something that doesn't immediately grab you, it's just trying to learn something, just trying to work it out on your own and then kind of connect with other people, which is what we're trying to do here. We're trying to reach out and in talking and writing about the books and music and films that we love, we generally hope to connect with that part of you that appreciates what these wonderful talents have put out into the world. Yeah, I should be clear. We don't write about music ever, John. Have we ever (laughs) written anything about music? You just said films and music and books. Well, I get it. I like that stricken from the record, John. (laughs) My hatred. Music is going to come up in this particular episode, so I thought it was good to bring it up. And certainly we do not uh, hate music. Um, (laughs) But uh, uh, Chris, this was your idea. Why don't you talk us through this whole survival kit idea that you have? Yeah, we were trying to find something simple like a list to do for this Primer episode. And I was saying to you, what, what are, not what you think are the best artworks in the world, but like six artworks, a film, an album, a novel, a painting that you need to survive, that like nurture in some way, that that feel essential to your continued existence. What are the artworks that if you have to have just six of them, that you need to navigate your existential journey? These things that are, and whatever that means, I wanted to be a little bit broad with the concept. I didn't want it to be just like, these are the six best things you think of all time. You know, these are the artworks that you need to be alive that help you continue to be alive. And just to explain what I mean uh, a little more, as we are, we're going to go into the list now, right? We're going to start doing our six. Is that the yes? Idea? I should say I should say just what what distinguishes it from something like a desert island disc or something like that is that we're not you know <laughs> stuck on a desert island. These are just things that in daily life you kind of feel like I need this thing. I want to reach out and be able to connect with this thing in some way to keep me sane, right? I think it's sort of the idea that you had. Exactly, exactly. I think there is something that's different about than than a desert island disc with it, where it's not, you know, I don't necessarily think it even needs to have the replay value of a desert island film. You know, there are some artworks on these lists that maybe, you know, we'll talk about it. It's maybe once every five or six years I listen to it or watch it or read it, you know, that it's not necessarily the same thing. But when I need it, I really need it. And I think to help explain the concept, I'll tell you what my biggest omission for my survival kit is, John. I think the greatest film ever made, probably my favorite movie ever made, is The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And it's not in my survival kit. And it's sort of hard for me to articulate why as much as I love that movie and think it's a perfectly both aesthetic, intellectually, uh, morally, experimentally perfect film and how unique it is and how striking it is and how sort of inexhaustible it is. It's a movie I've seen about 60 times and I will probably see it another 60 before I depart this mortal coil. And, but it doesn't feel like it doesn't feel necessary to my survival. It's a movie I love, but it doesn't, I don't, when I'm faced with existential problems and existential quandaries and existential fears, 
I don't think of that movie. You know, it's a movie that unquestionably I get a lot from intellectually, but it's not a movie that hits me directly in my heart. I don't think it can. It's the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's depraved. It's beautifully depraved, but it doesn't hit that chord and, and act as a guidebook in any way to me navigating my day-to-day -day life. And so in that context, let me ask you, John, before we get into it, what is the biggest omission from your list? Okay, well, first let me say it is ironic that you're leaving Texas Chainsaw Massacre off out of the survival kit since survival is so specifically a theme of that movie. <laughs> well, I feel like if my life had more deranged cannibal families in it, I would need that film. <laughs> if I lived in Texas, maybe I'd need it in my survival kit. Uh -huh. That stands, you know. I love that movie too, but I agree it's something that doesn't feel essential to the soul in the way I think that we're talking about. Yeah. And, yeah. And it's better than almost everything on my list too, I would say, like in an objective, good or bad way. Although I find like ordinal rankings of things, you know, of art absurd. You know, this also isn't a ranking, we should mention. This isn't one through six, the most important. This is just six, you know, sort of in random order almost. Yeah, so my mission uh, in that respect then is uh, the work of Flannery O'Connor. Flannery O'Connor is uh, my favorite writer. Uh, I, I can't even guess who would be next to her. Um, and I think my excuse here is I, I don't know what specific artwork of hers I would point out of her two novels and her 30-some stories. I think it's a package deal. And it's just, I, I don't know what I would select specifically to talk about. Um, it's definitely something I need in my life all the time. I mean, I have the constant thought, why read any new fiction when I can just reread Flannery O'Connor over again? And it's so much derives from my appreciation of her, I think, uh, even with Texas Chainsaw, with horror, with Southern culture, everything that I understand and appreciate about it comes from her work. I think crime fiction, you know, comes from her, from the con artists and the murderers who are in her story. Good Man is Hard to Find is yeah, like yeah, the perfect course. crime story. Of course, it is the perfect crime story. And uh, so many of her works and her understanding of the world, I have a very uh, superficial connection. You know, she and I are both born in Savannah, Georgia, and we both love to raise peacocks. I, I, any connection I feel with her, though, is just completely straight straight to my soul through her work and you know i my appreciation of things and my first my first actual choice well, my first can, I, can i say one thing about flannery o'connor too of course yeah i i also feel like good man is hard to find is something that could easily be on my list as basic as it is like as it's the obvious pick for her she's also it's she's just a little too cruel for me you know what I mean? She's yeah. <laughs> too certain about the uncertainties of life for me as, as she is. You know what I mean? Not her characters. That I feel like there's just too much meanness for me <laughs> to be like, this is one of my six. Yeah. He's not very forgiving in a way that as a person, I need to be forgiven. <laughs> yeah, I get that. And also, I think just the... It's just, just honestly, the time difference, you know, that she grew up in a different time and a different place where the entire world was changing you know, around her and the entire makeup of the country was completely different. I feel like in our generation, we haven't exactly experienced anything as drastic as that, as yeah. what was going on at the time that Flannery O'Connor was writing and at the time uh, oh, and that, that her stories are set and take place. So um, yeah. it's not really a disconnection specifically, but it is one thing that, you know, I obviously can't have a direct relationship to the yeah. way that I can with certain certain films. But again, her... Her world outlook and her characters are what kind of lead me into my first selection, which is Carl Franklin's film, One False Move from 1992. Oh, yeah. Yes. 
Yes. <laughs> yes. It's, uh, it's amazing. And what, what I think really like, because it was such a sleeper, because it was not a huge hit, because it was not noticed for several years, it was several years before people started, you know, talking about this film and writing about it in any significant way. I, I kind of thought like, what, what is it about this film that really draws me to it all the time? It makes me well, think just like, explain, I think we need, to, about uh, we need to explain, just explain a little bit of the plot and the setup of it. So when of we course. go through these lists, just what the things are. So one false move, uh, two things are going on. We've got uh, a group of criminals who have just committed a horrible crime in Los Angeles. They're on the run. One of them is a young woman who wants to get back to her hometown her motives are kind of unclear. Both she's kind of lying to the guy she's with, the murderers that she's with. And, uh, you know, the audience kind of learns more as the movie goes along. But what it is is she wants to get back to Star City, Arkansas, where uh, she left behind a son uh, that she had had with, well, I don't want to give too much away. In Star City, they realize that they're headed, that these criminals head that way. Two cops from L.A. come to, uh, to catch them there and meet up with uh, a local cop in Hurricane Dixon, played by Bill Paxton, who we learn throughout the movie has a closer association with uh, these people. That's basically what happens. Criminals, but not the cops. The criminals, right? The, yeah. the ones who are headed towards Star City. But when I think about this film, to me, it really is a crossroads where truly penetrating, meaningful filmmaking meets expert genre storytelling. You know, this is like where Carl Dreher meets John Carpenter for me. As a procedural film or as a crime film, it's as expertly done it's, it's incredibly cool and entertaining as any as as you could hope it's sort of easily in the same canon with William Friedkin's Sorcerer or Tuesday Pao Grisby um you know something where it's just undeniably fun and cool and you could watch it anytime and at the same time it's so heavily invested in its ideas into the writers and the director's insights into the characters the nature of things that you can't help but be absorbed by these things and moved by them every time learn something new and again this is not something i'm specifically connected to i've never been to arkansas i don't have the experience of these characters and certainly you know carl franklin i'm not a you know uh, a black filmmaker the way carl franklin is but it's he has an understanding of just the way that the modern world is and people's desperation and attempts to survive it that i find really really amazing and very impactful it's a very john cribs that's certainly one I think of with you. And you should mention it's written by Billy Bob Thornton, who plays one of the criminals. And as like, strange as a career he's had, he's extremely talented, too. That, that this, The script with his, his writing partner, Tom Epperson, really brings a ton to this movie as well. And that Billy Bob is, is great in it. And Michael Beach is great. In it. I think this is a movie that a lot of my reaction to it is like the main performances are all so perfect and so good that that's all you need in some way. You know, everything else is good about it. It's incredibly well directed and well written, but it's the performances being so dynamite uh, are really impactful. And it's interesting too. There's part of me that wants to ask you like, wow, why is this in your survival kit? But I'll lead into my first selection because I picked for my first selection a similar sort of movie, which is Miami Blues. It was directed by George Armitage in 1990. It's about a criminal on the run, Fred Fringer Jr., a.k.a. Herman Gottlieb, who touches down in Miami and is accosted at the airport by a Harry Krishna. He bends the Harry Krishna's finger back, causes the Harry Krishna so much pain to have a heart attack, kills the Harry Krishna. And so then the film is about... The other half of the film is this Detective Hope Mosley, who's like sort of a schlub. 
tracking down Fred Fringer Jr., who eventually, when he realizes a cop is on his case, steals Hoke's gun badge and dentures in his teeth. Hoke has had his teeth pulled out and replaced with uh, forensic dentures by the coroner. And big part of the movie, the most important part of the movie probably, is that Fred Fringer hooks up with a uh, prostitute played by Jennifer Jason Leigh named Susan Wagner. What's wrong with Susan? Her, her nickname is Pepper, she introduces herself as. But it is about this character, Fred Fringer Jr., attempting to be a regular human being and attempting to lead a straight life and a normal life and just not being able to connect with all of the things that regular human beings are able to connect with. And he has a, and so there's a few ways in which I connect with all of the characters in this movie, the three main characters, Hope Mosley, who's played by Fred Ward, Fred Fringer, who's played by Alec Baldwin, and Susan Wagner, who's played by Jennifer Jason Leigh, are all characters in their different ways that I identify with incredibly strongly at different points in time in my life. And this is a movie that, for whatever reason, it's certainly not a perfect movie. The first 20, 25 minutes of the movie is a real mess because it's trying to rewrite the book. It's based on a book by Charles Wilford that's great, and it's just trying to adapt it to a movie. So it's getting rid of a bunch of business, changing things for the plot, and then trying to get the movie set up. Like, it's, it's rough sledding at the beginning. It's certainly not... Uh, pitch perfect from stop to start the way I feel like one false move is. Um, there's a line in the film, which is that I could have everything and anything that I want, only I don't know what I want, that I think a lot about in my own life. And that it's just a movie that, you know, there's just lines I'm constantly repeating to myself at big moments in my life, you know, Uh, especially because I have a tendency to be self-destructive. I have a tendency to want to cut to the head of the line, you know, when Fred Fringer is asking, when Junior is asking Susie what she wants to do with her life. She has this dream of getting a Burger World franchise, right? She wants to have this little Burger World franchise. uh, And that's it. She wants a little house with big events and a Burger World franchise. That's her only aspiration. And his reaction is, but why? This is ludicrous, you know? How about we just skip to the white picket fence part? And that's certainly a problem I've always had in my life where I just want to skip to the white picket fence part. I just want to skip all of the sort of meaningless crap of existence that other people don't find meaningless, you know? And so it's a film that like anytime (laughs) in sort of my professional life, anytime that things go wrong for me the other line as i repeat is here's i was thinking some kind of a solid citizen after things sort of go disastrously long for junior when he when he seems like he's trying to be a good fake husband and good fake cop you know uh he tries to do some good in the movie and it goes disastrously long for him right and i feel that way i think a lot of people probably feel that way that the moments when i try and be my best self and do the right thing are the moments when my life goes most disastrously wrong. And I think reconnoitering the way I think about the world around this movie has happened very naturally and in a strange way. There's very few movies I think of as much as this film. Even even the Hope Mosley character uh, is a character who, in some ways, he's like, that character is about the, the sort of thin line between giving up on your life and finding exactly where you're supposed to be, you know, where you don't have to be ambitious anymore because you are where exactly where you should be. 
right? And so a lot of that character is about like, his life seems really bad in some ways, but also he's a great detective and that's all he really wants, you know, is to have some pork chops and some beer and to fucking, you know, even if you think he's a weak suck, he's going to get the son of bitch that did this. And I think that that's, that's also where I feel like when things are going good, that's sort of how I feel about myself. I think you can, you know, I just, it's really hard for me to imagine not watching this movie every now and then. And unlike a lot of, you know, like I said, I had watched Texas Chainsaw Massacre 60 times, you know, the movies and, and books and albums and, and all of that stuff that I really like, I have a tendency to repeat and read over and over, watch over and over and do over and over again, rather than, uh, not rather than exploring new things, but I don't, I, I just have, it's just what I do. And this is not one of those films that I watch repetitively. If I had to guess, I guess I've seen it, you know, 10 times in my life, 12 times, not a huge amount of times. And it's a funny thing. It's the opposite of a desert Island film. I'm a little worried about wearing out this movie. I don't think this movie is a perfect enough artwork that if I watched it twice a year, every year, the way I do some films without even thinking about it, three times a year, you mentioned Touche Pile Grisby. That's a movie that like I will watch several times a year without even thinking about it. It is flawless and it goes down smooth. You know, like if I just had to watch a movie over and over, like that's, that's a better desert Island pick than Miami blues. And I worry a little bit because it's a little bit fragile of an artwork about breaking it through overviewing it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. About wearing it out. So, but I, but I need it. I definitely need it. I, I'm, not, I'm not surprised. This is definitely the one, if I had to guess, you know, the very first thing that you would have picked for these, uh, for the survival kit, it would have been Miami Blues. My question for you is, does the kind of absurdity that happens in this movie, the kind of like really crazy black comedy, like, you know, a car, you know, bursting through a gas station to knock a guy down, does that kind of recontextualize your own life in a way that's like, this is like a very like accessible way to like kind of laugh at life's yeah. insanity and, and the things that you, like your own personality yeah. and things. Well, that you know me, John. You know, like dark humor and gallows humor is incredibly important to me. And as mm -hmm. much as like, not to be too serious, but if you're someone like me who definitely struggles with negativity and darkness in your life, gallows humor is essential. It's the only thing that I found. You know, you have that list of all the things you go through to try and uh, deal with the world. And dark humor is really important. I'm not saying it's the most important, but it's certainly, you know, it works better than whiskey. I'll say that fucking much. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like the absurd yeah. dark humor of this, to be able sort of to look the blackness of the world in the face and be able to laugh at it a little bit is really huge. And not laugh at it defiantly, laugh at it, both connect with it and push it away. You know what I mean? I think that's what humor does. Like dark humor acknowledges and pushes something away. It's not purely defiant. You know, that's what satire is or whatever. The humor well, of this yeah. connects me to the darkness of it and the bad stuff and the real violence. It's a world where bad things happen and not everything goes right. No, that's great. And I think what's, you know, great too about the movie that is definitely something that comes directly from Charles Williford and his series of Hope Mosley books is that the world is so just undisguisedly cruel and corrupt that to have one person who comes out and is so boldly criminal the way that Freddie Fringer is in this movie, you know, is something that you kind of appreciate even while he's doing horrible things. Yeah, he's he's doing horrible things. He's, he's definitely like a criminal with a capital C, but he does it in such a way that it's just... It's <laughs> so loaded with moral sorry. irony. It is, a, yeah. it is a book that is loaded with moral irony. And, as, and that is 
the only morality that makes any sense to me is one that has an understanding of irony, of counterpoint, of mm -hmm. the relationship between badness and goodness, and how those are things that are difficult to sort out and reflect and reflect off of each other in strange, unexpected ways. And that series of books, the Four Hope uh, Mosley novels written by Charles Williford, I always, you know, am fascinated by just as a late career artwork. I mean, he published Miami Blues when he was 65. He died four years later. It's interesting just to think about this kind of thing that was so essential to who he is and his career coming so uh, so much towards the end of his life, you know, it's, it's just yeah. one of those things that you're kind of like, glad happened, you know, <laughs> glad that he didn't like sit on it for a few years and then die without ever putting this out into the world. Yeah. Something that I always appreciate about the books and, and about the movie existing. And it's also, you're right, it's something that's funny to think about is like, wow, what if the most, the thing that most people think define you, the most defining moment of your life doesn't come till you're 65. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> and so, John, do you, do you want to, yeah, well, to say it is? I was going to say, speaking of 65, okay. let's go back to 1965. I'm going to give you my second selection. What a segue. <laughs> I am a master podcaster. This is a book called Cosmicomics, written by Italo Calvino. It is not a novel. It is not a short story collection. It is indefinable, I would say. Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> uh, only because it is a loosely connected series of chapters uh, that I don't even know how I would, you know, would say that they're they're directly connected, only that they take the creation of the world, the creation of the universe, and relate them to human emotions, right? To love stories, to things that we can all appreciate. Uh, Calvino was terrific at doing this kind of thing. He loved science. He was great at taking, looking at the world, looking at all of cosmos, looking at all of creation, looking at all of human existence and being able to relate to it in very simple emotions, things that everyone can understand, kind of take it into the palm of his hand. The Form of Space, which is one of the chapters in Cosmo Comics, is pretty much everything you need to know about unrequited love or misconnections. And it's presented in the context of a man falling through space, which is something I always enjoy, you know, whether it's Dark Star or Ray Bradbury. His other love stories in the book, all at one point without colors, uh, are just terrific and have great conceptual ideas that are very surreal and very uh, anthropomorphic and absurd, but are, again, communicated in ways that are completely accessible. The Spiral is a story about, you know, life as a mollusk, for Christ's sake. Calvino is just somebody who understands tragic hilarity and the hilarious tragedy of existence in a way that I think nobody else does. This is a book that I constantly goes, go back to. I'll just read one story, you know, before I go to sleep here or there. It's just something that you can come back to again and again. And he's also a writer who takes, you know, loves the idea of myths, takes the ideas of previous concepts and then recontextualizes it in a way that's interesting. That's why I love Carlos Fuentes. That's why I love Angela Carter. But Calvino, I think, does it in a way that's always funny and just heartbreaking at the same time. Um, so as much as I love everything he's written and could easily say the same thing about Difficult Loves or Invisible Cities, anything where he kind of takes a theme and runs with it and kind of does his Italo Calvino thing, I think Cosmo Comics is one that just really speaks to me. And uh, in, in terms of books that I come back to and read, this is the one. This, yeah. I think this is the one if I had to pick one. It makes a lot of sense to to, to pick for a survival kit because there's nothing else like it. Like a no, lot there of isn't. collections on these lists, if I couldn't do Miami Blues, well, actually, One False Move is kind of like Miami Blues in some ways, you know? <laughs> yeah. There, if you take Cosmic Comics out of your kit, there's no replacement for it. 
there's nothing else you can get in there. You know, there's no other place to, to go to get what that thing is. And I like, one of the things I like about it too that you mentioned is it's extremely funny and it's as big and as about the whole of cosmos and emotion and human existence it is, and is sort of literary and scientific also as it is. It's a purely literary conceit. You couldn't make this as a movie, period. No, absolutely. Um, even, you know, not even Chuck Jones could do the dot in the line with it, you know? Um, it is incredibly accessible and incredibly funny. And it's one of those movies that I can't wait until my son is, uh, movies, one of those books that I can't wait until my son is like, 14 to give it to him you know what i mean it's just one of those artworks you have like loaded up waiting for like what's the youngest possible age i can give this to my child you know <laughs> yeah. and of course by then he'll probably be a teen and hate it so there you <laughs> get your head out of your ass dad there's gonna be girls there that'll be his response when i'm like he's gonna be have a comic cosmic themed birthday party <laughs> he's gonna be he's gonna be building up his own survival kit at that point <laughs> It will be it will be all Minecraft if based on what I've seen right now. <laughs> um, and Minecraft and Roll Doll. I guess there's worse survival kits than that. So that is my second selection. Let me just dive dive on in. I'm the guy who says dive on in. Originally, I was going to pull sort of like a punk move and say, okay, I picked the collected works of Milan Kundera, right? Like, ha, 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 you know, totally betraying the idea that I had set up. Um, because Milan Kundera is an author that really means an incredible amount to me and sort of organizing the way I think about the world and understand the world. He's really super important. And then I was going to say, okay, so I'm not going to do that that dumb jokey thing of picking all the collected works of Milan Kundera. I'll pick Testaments Betrayed, which is his uh, nonfiction book on the art of writing. It's sort of a series of chapters and it's a very poetic, beautiful book. And one that as I, as an artist myself, as a filmmaker and a writer myself, that I dip into a huge amount when I'm trying to think about what am I doing and why am I doing it? In addition to really useful practical advice, uh, about structure and counterpoint and irony and harmony and all of those sorts of ideas. That's incredibly deep. You know, that's a book that, that I'm constantly turning to. But I think with this practice, we're not talking about nonfiction at all. We're talking about artworks. And I do think that we do need to narrow it down just a little bit. Otherwise, I have to start thinking about like, oh, is there a Stephen Jay Gould book or some criticism by Terrence Rafferty? You know, James Elroy's My Dark Places very easily could have been on this list for me if we were going to go into nonfiction. And then also I had to think about, oh, Kurosawa's something like an autobiography or Boonwell's My Last Sigh. I don't think that's what we're doing with this right now. I think it should be artwork, you know, not something, not, not, uh, not nonfiction, not something that uh, is sort of art adjacent in that way. So that means what I'm picking is Laughable Loves. Um, and weirdly that you mentioned Cosmic Comics because Ital Calpino's Difficult Loves was a very close runner up for this spot. I guess I just wanted to pick a short story collection with love in the title. They're yeah, I guess very so. essential to my existence. <laughs> but Laughable Loves is great. It's a series of short stories that are all, you know, like Kundera, they're deeply ironic. And um, they're all almost like platonic ideals. They're all stories that you say, I can't believe I've never read this story before. Like there's one about a couple that's having a fight on the road and 
one of the couple gets out of the car and the other one pretends to hit, picks them up from the side of the road and the one getting back in the car pretends to be a hitchhiker like they're strangers from that point on. Or there's one about a pair of guys, guy friends, who are going out trying to meet women and they don't realize that they don't care about the women. They like, it's all about their friendship, what they're doing. You know, that it's actually all sort of beside the point. They seek not the query, but the chase. And it's just great. I think that picking a short story for my collection for my survival kit was, uh, seemed like a good idea. It allows it to be a little bit of a cheat, you know, to get like six stories, you know, six artworks in one in some way, you know, that I don't have to pick like one thing in that and that there's variety and expansion. And they're definitely stuff that because they're short and breezy too, I feel like for my survival kit, I need some stuff. It doesn't all have to be monuments. You know what I mean? Like it doesn't all have to be giant, massive, 15 and a half hour movies, thousand page books that like the idea of some things that are that are breezy and easy while still be very, very deep and beautiful and clever. Yeah, uh-huh. that's definitely the appeal of Cosmo Comics for me as well. That uh, yeah. you could, it's very short. You could basically breeze through it and it's not, not challenging or difficult in a way that's, you know, it takes away from the fun at all. But yeah, but these are also, these are books that, the short stories that are about the stuff I think about, you know, they're about love and sex and wilting political disillusionment and just sort of the difficulties between me and men and women, between me and women. What a Freudian slip there, John. <laughs> and they're hopeful and as, and as acidic as he can be. These are light and lovely. So John, to keep going. Well, let me just say, I, you know, that's, I knew there's going to be some Kundera on the list for you. I'm surprised it wasn't the the book of laughter and forgetting. (sighs) Yeah. I mean, it was a tough choice. I think that, that it just came down to having multiple short stories as opposed to the one big story. It was really hard. It was really hard to pick between that. I think that Unbearable Lightness, Book of Laughter, Forgetting, and Laughable Loves, those were, it was going to be one of those three. And Book and Laughter, Forgetting, I might have worn out. I might have just read it too many times at this point. Yeah. And it just felt like this Laughable Love still feels very alive to me and very surprising to me every time I read it in a way that like I know Book of Laughter and Forgetting front to back. You know, I know there's not a single passage in it. I'm like, oh yeah, that, I forgot about that. There's really not. That's interesting. This whole concept of wearing something out, you know, and something that you obviously don't want in your survival kit is something that's not going to be effective anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's funny. I don't know. It's weird because we'll get in. And I think it might just be the first two that, that this came up because the rest of my list is all stuff that like I cannot wear out. If it was able to be worn out, I would have worn them out. You know, <laughs> the next four choices are all movies that I've, that really, if three months goes by without me ingesting these things, I'd be very surprised to hear it. Well, just for safety's sake, my next pick is a, a big thing. Yeah. It's not, it's not a sm- small contained uh it's not a book, it's not a movie, it's a television series. It's a monument to human accomplishment. That is, it's that as well. It's, uh, it's Futurama is what it is. Oh, it's, um, okay. I, I, it was, it's, it's funny because I should just, as a preface, say I'm not like a big TV guy. I don't follow TV series uh, too much. You know, I, I'll dip into something like The Wire or Breaking Bad because everyone says it's great, but it's never something that's 
particularly impactful to me in any way. I'd say, you know, Freaks and Geeks and Buffy the Vampire Slayer are probably the only series I revisit at all. You know, like I bought the DVDs and I'll go back every few years and check them out again. But animated television, and especially primetime animated television, is something for some reason I've always just found to be, as an artwork, a lot more important than most of the live action stuff. I love this. Obviously, The Simpsons was a very formative thing when I was growing up in terms of my humor and you know outlook and uh then moving on home movies was super huge for me but as much as i love those i love samurai jack i mean there's there's so many i could just talk about them all day but futurama has the same appeal for me as cosmo uh, cosmic comics in a lot of ways they're these tiny universe spanning stories that are actually intimate tales of the relationships between these characters characters that you know i love and as much as I love the characters on The Simpsons, I don't know what it is. I think Futurama just works for me better as a collective thing. I'm talking specifically about its initial run when it was on Fox. You know, it was revived five years after being canceled on Comedy Central. I'm less familiar with those episodes, even though I'm glad they exist because you had masterpieces like the episode of the late Philip J. Fry, which I think are great. But that initial series from 1999 to 2003... It's just something that I feel really close to. I think the recurring characters especially become so important in that universe. Zap Brannigan, you know, who should have been voiced by Phil Hartman, but, you know, Billy West channels Hartman incredibly well. But these main characters, the three main characters, Bender, uh, Leela, and and Philip J. Fry, they're just people that you want to hear more stories about. They have just such a phenomenal dynamic. Uh, And that's before you even get into the great writers, Ken Keeler, Eric Horstead, David X. Cohen the amazing animation by uh, Rough Draft Studios. I would never argue that Futurama is better than The Simpsons in its prime. I certainly wouldn't, it certainly wouldn't exist without The Simpsons. I just think its intentions are more, more earnest in a way. Just a list of episodes that I love, you know, Insane, the mainframe is my favorite episode of all time. Yeah. Uh, but uh, Future Stock is great. Roswell and Enswell is amazing. The Wire Fry is such a great uh, film with such an unexpected dramatic ending. And you, and you and I can tell right now, you're so deep into the future on that you're expecting the audience to just innately know what all of this is and what the show was and everything <laughs> about it. It was an animated... If you don't, I'm not here to tell you about it. <laughs> Go and see it. It's about a delivery boy who's frozen in the year 2000, wakes up in the year 3000, and gets involved with these people, including um, a an orphan cyclops, a... Uh, hedonistic uh, gambling robot you know what i just watched the the pilot again recently and i watched the pilot again recently and i had forgotten that it's fry that causes bender to become amoral that he convinces him to bend the bars and throw out his programming so that's why he becomes completely without morality did you remember (laughs) about it i guess i never really connected the two things because we're introduced to bender going into a suicide booth. So you always already kind of assume he's self-destructive, you know? But he says a few times, oh, I can't do that. It's against my programming. Yeah, the idea of going beyond your programming, I think is a great theme. And yeah, so that's interesting to think about uh, for sure, because these characters change over the course of the series, whether it's through, you know, pursuing a love interest in, in Fry's case, you know, or finding out your background, who, who your parents are, who you are which is Leela's story arc, just everything about it, or even just trying to fit in with people who are nothing like you, the way Dr. Zoidberg, the lobster physician who works at Planet Express, which is the delivery uh, company that this uh, is mainly focused on. Just there's something to connect with all these characters while all these 
insanely funny and amazingly well-written episodes are are happening. And it's something too that came like at the right time in my life where, you know, it's like I was out of college because I didn't watch it during its initial run. When I was in college, when it started, I watched the first episode and I wasn't into it. Yeah, so I, I come back to it. You and I like had a conversation like, we're a huge Simpsons fan and this is a little iffy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's funny because if I'd watched the second episode, the series has landed, which is phenomenal. I probably would have been into it right away, but yeah. um, college was a time I definitely did not watch TV. So coming out of college and then having this time in my life where it's like now I have to figure out who I am and where I fit in the universe, that was the right time when Adult Swim started rerunning syndicated episodes of Futurama when I started watching it. It just really clicked with me in a way that feels really important. And to this day, even though I can't get my kids into Futurama, they'll watch one episode, but it's not going to be, you know. Oh, really? I was just yeah. thinking Futurama would actually be on Parker's survival kit. But yeah, yeah, my friends. When you brought it up again, I was like, that's his number one show right now. Yeah, one of my best friends, his daughter, like, like Futurama is like philosophy for her. Like, it's like, you know, it's part of her language, you know, it's so important to her. Parker likes that so much, he even likes the dumb Da Vinci Planet episode. That's how much he likes it. (laughs) Oh, that one's okay. Does he like the Santa episodes? That's the real question. But my my kids, no, you know, no of course not. It's something I can't. It's something I can't force on the kids, unfortunately. But yeah, maybe sometime down the line, it's not important. They, they, like like we said, they, they'll they'll form their own survival kits. Yeah, cool. your daughters are also super cool, and I would say have better taste than being a nerd who likes Futurama. Agreed. That's what I'll just say about about your daughter. <laughs> um, but but definitely important to me. As, a, as an artwork. It's something that for me did not feel like a television show. It felt like something that was an ongoing artwork from the first episode to the last. So, okay. I th- that's good. That's cool. I'm with it. I'm surprised, but I am with it. I know you love Futurama. I'm surprised to see it on your list. I will dive straight into my third selection. I will get right into it, which is The Lady Eve from uh, the great screwball comedy director Preston Sturges in 1941. This Best comedy ever. Certainly the funniest comedy ever made. I had a long argument once with a whole group of people who were angry at me. That I, it, you know, you know, the band Dr. Dog, those guys were angry at me that I thought it was funnier than the Big Lebowski. They were really furious. <laughs> One of like the most heated arguments I've ever had where they were like, you do not. It is black. It was very strange. Um, but this movie is about a con artist who is working a cruise ship and they pick up a very rich guy, the son of a beer magnet, or is it ale? I can't remember. And she puts her sights on him and right as she's bringing him in, she's going to marry him, get his money, run her con on her, how she's doing it. She gets found out by his right-hand man. But she realizes she's actually falling in love with him. So she falls in love with him right as she's about to get found out, right? She decides, I'm going to give up the con and be with this guy, but she gets found out. She gets kicked to the curb. And so she gets really obsessed with revenge. You know, he needs me the way the turkey needs the axe. And she shows up at a party of his, pretending to be an entirely different person, 
the Lady Eve Sidgwick and goes about seducing him again so she can really and truly thoroughly break him this time. And it is an incredibly goofy screwball comedy. It's an incredible amount of fun. It's deep, like all of Preston Surge's stuff. It actually has good ideas and interesting ideas about love and the version of ourselves we present to the people we want to be in love with, about the ways in which we try and reimagine ourselves for the people that that mean the most to us, the ways in which we try and become different people when we're in love, and the ways in which we try and find the better versions of ourselves, and knowing, like, there's a bit of a con to this, you know? There's a bit of a, of a game to all of it, right, as well, but that doesn't diminish it. That doesn't make it not love, I think, is one of the big themes of the movies, is that people have to decide who they are, you know? Is that almost all style and identity is an affectation on some level, you know, like nobody comes out of the womb, a goth chick, you know what I mean? At some point you wake up and you say, I'm going to be a punk rock kid and get the Liberty spikes. Right. And it's a path you're on, but at the same time, it's an affectation. And I think that that's one of the themes of the movie is that doesn't make it untrue that that doesn't make it false. That doesn't make it valueless that because we try to be a better person doesn't mean we're not a better person. And I also like the idea of the movie, the uh, good girls aren't nearly as good as you think they are. And the bad ones aren't nearly as bad. I don't think that about women. That's something that I should be entirely clear with this. I 100% identify with the lady. When I watch this movie, I'm not thinking I'm like Henry Fonda. I watch this movie and I'm like, God damn, I am so much like Barbara Stanwyck in this movie. Right? Like, that is the character. You'd have to be crazy not to be identifying with Barbara Stanwyck in this movie. Uh, or you'd have to be incredibly different from me. Maybe not crazy, <laughs> since I'm the one with mental illness. Maybe you're a regular person, is what I would say. Maybe you're Henry Fonda, who's never quite met a woman like me, Chris Funderburg. I definitely identify more with Henry Fonda, just in the, the way of like, just be straight with me. Don't play these games. Just tell me what's going on. I need help with the, in life. Well, I definitely have that kind of thought. I think that's why most reviews of this podcast say they're the Stanwick and Fonda of podcasting. <laughs> I think that is the reference. I also wanted this in my, my uh, uh, survival kit. I think it's a stand-in for all the old Hollywood entertainment that I love, for all of the entertainment from that era that's just like purely fun and joy and like makes your day brighter. You know, I was really trying to think about like uh, this slot, I almost put a musical like Royal Wedding or Singing in the Rain in this slot where it was sort of like, ah, it should be Singing in the Rain, shouldn't it? Like that's an inexhaustible movie, but my favorite musical right now, I'm so embarrassed to admit, and look, I can't defend it. I can't defend the gray fedora from Haiti number and Royal Wedding. (laughs) I can't, but I love that one so much. And, uh, And that's also sort of about people who are emotional con artists, Royal Wedding. It's all about a bunch of liars and players and things like that. And, you know, I think that I, I definitely need that sort of thing in my life. You know, like I can't go the rest of my life without golden age Hollywood stuff. I just don't think I could do it, John. It's just too easy to, to, to put it on, to put this stuff on and just feel better and just feel good. And yeah. that, that's important. I agree 100%. In fact, this is the only... I know I'm a heartless monster. This is what me <laughs> trying to go with my heart looks like. This is uh, there's there's a lot of heart behind that monster. I could I could attest to that. It's funny that Preston Sturges dismisses this one more or less as being just a series of pratfalls because there are a series of pratfalls in the big dinner scene where she introduced herself as the Lady Sedgwick and 
Henry Fonda's running around, William Demarest is running around trying to figure she, out what the hell's going on. first gets Henry Fonda's attention with a pratfall. Yeah, uh, and it's, it's funny because it's, on the one hand, it's a series of pratfalls so convoluted, it's almost like he's making fun of the idea of pratfalls in comedy, but they're all so perfectly executed <laughs> that it's like, this is the kind of thing that Preston Sturges could do in his sleep if he wanted. He could literally have a full 90-minute movie of pratfalls, and it would be hilarious. Yeah. But the fact that it just kind of comes within this one scene is like, just like a guidebook for comedy, I think, for physical comedy. Yeah, but it's also a perfect script. You can't write a better movie than this. It just all fits together so well, and everything plays, and it's always going full speed somehow, but never wears you out. It's a movie that just moves so brisk and doesn't exhaust you. Sometimes when movies get hyperactive like that, that like there's a lot of like Palm Beach Story is a movie I love, but I'm fucking exhausted by the end. You know what I mean? Or Miracle <laughs> at Morgan's Creek, where it's like, I love it, but it's just like, slow it down. Yeah. Take it, Eddie Bracken. Take it down one notch. You know, this is a movie where you never feel that way. You feel like it's flying by at full speed. I think a lot of that credit goes to Stanwyck. You know, she just sets the tone of the movie so perfectly. She sets the pace of the movie uh, with so her character. Charming. Just takes control of it. And as much as I love all of Preston Sturges's, uh films from this era in his career, yeah, yeah, yeah. Every it's like, time. I don't think another one has a, perform- a central performance that really just commands the way that hers does in this film and really just yeah. sets everything in the right, everything in the right direction. And I think she's the best match for him. He, 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 paired himself a lot of times with actresses like uh, like uh, Betty Hutton or Eddie Bracken, who were kind of, did a lot of mugging. I, I think it's good to have a really sharp actress like Barbara Stanwyck in this. I think it's, I think it's similar to having Joel McRae in Sullivan's Travels, where you have someone who's capable of being weighty in this uh, story that that is in danger of flying off the rails, I think makes it, it works. It makes it weighty in a way that, that the other ones are so much fun, but I, 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 don't, I don't think Miracle at Morgan's Creek is as deep as Lady Eve, as much as I love, 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 love Miracle at Morgan's Creek. Yeah, Hail the Conquering Hero was a movie that I think I kind of resisted a little bit initially because of Eddie Bracken's specific way of mugging yeah. and, and, and not being able to appreciate the Preston Sturges-ness of the movie as yeah. much as the Lady Eve, but... I, but I like I, the I mugging, love, too. I love, I, I, love, yeah. I like Sturges, and I don't like Lubitsch. You know what I mean? And I think, like, the reason for that is, is I love some goofy shit. You know, like, I really (laughs) do. I like a good, goofy movie. And this movie has got plenty of goofiness in it. William Dimmerest in this movie is phenomenally over the top and wonderful. Positively. Best last line of all time? Uh, I'd have to think about it. It's up there. Is, Is the last line of Miami Blues... He never beat me, and he always cooked everything. I no, ate. it's his exchange with Alita Sanchez, right? Oh yeah, comes right up. Chris is not so bright. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's so close. That would be my favorite <laughs> last line in the movie. It's still great. It's still it's, fantastic. Does Marilyn Burns' constant shrieking in Texas Chainsaw Massacre count as a laugh? <laughs> I'm yeah. I would argue so. <laughs> um, but why don't you like Big Lebowski? Is my question. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> I like Big Lebowski. <laughs> I'm, I am perfectly capable of liking the things that everybody else likes. God damn it, John. <laughs> John, let me hear your fourth selection. Sticking with the con artist angle a little bit. Uh, I'm also sticking with animation here. Yeah. Go with a cartoon. Oh, yeah? 1957. 
Yeah. Chuck Jones. What is it going to be? Can you tell me what it is? Can you, can you got a guess? From about a con artist in 1957? Well, in that Bugs Bunny is always a con artist of sorts. Is it What's Opera Doc? That's yes, 57. What's Opera Doc? Now, I should say, I put this on my list, like, of course, What's Opera Doc is going on there. Because, yeah. because I have, you know, uh, art and figures from What's Opera Doc all over my office because it's something that I need in my life all the time to think about. It's something that connects me with my wife who loves it. It's just something that my kids love. It's just something that is just... It's possibly the, things... the funniest seven minutes ever committed to celluloid. Yeah, it's just something that, you know, it's undeniable. You, you just, just, you can't deny it. It's, it is a, a literal masterpiece. Like, just nothing else compares to it. It is, it is pure concentrated joy. But then when I sat down and thought of it, like, in terms of this survival kit of this experiment, I thought, oh, shit, what do I have to say about this? What specifically am I going to say? And so I went immediately, of course, to Chuck Jones's book. And uh, I don't know if you know about his entry in that. It's literally two sentences. It's like, well, this was the best thing we ever did. Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he doesn't Sometimes dwell that's on what it. what there is to say about it. What else is there to say? It's what's opera doc. <laughs> seven minutes of your day will, seven minutes of your day will make the rest of the day good. <laughs> yeah. And you know what's funny too, is there's so many Chuck Jones films you could pick. There's so many that immediately pop into your head, like One Froggy Evening or Feed the Kitty or just any number of stuff. But then you say, no, the one I pick is What's Opera Doc? And it's like, of course. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's like, I would need... that are good that if you pick that one, no one's going to be like, what about this other thing? They'll be like, oh, what about this other thing? Then you pick that. No one's going to argue with it. It's you important have... to say that this is probably not even my very favorite Chuck Jones uh, Looney Tune, Merry Melody, but it's the one I absolutely need. I can't imagine another one that would be more essential to me to exist in this world. Like literally, if you know some kind of horrible demon came down and said, "I'm take, I'm erasing from existence every Chuck Jones cartoon except one. Pick it. What am I going to pick? I, I mean, it would be this one, right? It's just, it's, it's got to be this one. Yeah. And for a while there too, I used to think that I liked Rabbit of Seville just as much as it. And uh, but I went back and watched it, and it's like Rabbit of Seville is great. It's like a warm up for What's Opera Doc, though. You know? Oh, oh I agree. Yeah. And uh, and it's great. They're all great. If I if I did think about why What's Opera Doc belongs in my survival kit specifically, it's only that in terms of Chuck Jones's entire career and the entire you know Warner Brothers uh, cartoon uh, animation career. They had gotten so good at the Bugs Bunny formula that they could take it and put it in any era, any format. They could make it an opera, and yeah. it would work so well. Yeah, it's a perfect machine. So it's a the perfect machine, and this yeah. is the most perfect, or it's a perfect mechanism, and this is the most perfect machine they built around it. Right. So I could sit here and talk about you know the amazing contributions of Maurice Noble and beautiful, beautiful images from this. You know, I mean, any one you could put up on a wall and frame it. They're incredible. But uh, mainly, I think it's just that this team had come together at this point in time and created something that is as close to perfect as anything you could ever hope an artwork could be. And this is just the crowning achievement of that. Yeah. Well. And so funny. My fourth selection is, I think, a little different than that is <laughs> uh, Jacques Le Fataliste by Denis Diderot. Oh, of course. 1796. I'm going to call him Denis Diderot and I'm going to call it Jack the Fatalist for the rest of Jacques Le Fataliste. 
because I can't do French and doing the fake French accent as trying to show respect is in some ways more disrespectful. So I'm just going to American own up. Um, <laughs> there's, there's a few books that I read over and over and over again, right? That I said before uh, that we mentioned wearing out. There's Kundera, like I mentioned. There's Calvino. I've read the Calvinos that I like over and over again. Um, this book, I read more than any of them. This book is inexhaustible to me. This is a book that I'll just pick up and read from random passages at any given day, just constantly starting over from the beginning, starting halfway through, reading 10 pages here, reading 15 pages at the end, finding a particular section that I like and just going through it. Uh, and I wanted to use a slot on one of those books that I've read dozens of times and will read a dozen more times throughout my life, uh, dozens of times. It is a book that is about a Jack, Jacques and his master, and they are going by horseback. They're going on a trip that's not specified, coming from unplaced specified. And Jacques keeps trying to tell the master the story of his loves in order to amuse the master, right? To make the trip go faster. And the master is a little bit of uh, an oaf and a bore, and Jacques is a little bit of sort of a, a blue collar fool. Um, they're a little bit to type, but it's a picaresque. And it's about him trying to tell this story and getting distracted, both distracted by what happens to them on their horseback ride, like their horses tear off at one point and take them to a gallows. And they're like, why did the horses bring us to the gallows? And they've got to figure out why the horse did that, right? Or him trying to tell the story of what was happening in his loves and realizing he has to go further back and tell a story within the story, right? Like he can't tell the story of how he broke his leg unless he tells the story of how he met this other woman, that kind of thing throughout it, constantly digressing. It's a book that like, if you want a book to get to its point, you will throw this thing through the goddamn window, you know? But it's just, it's fun and it's really funny and it's super smart and it's constantly interrupted by Diderot himself sort of giving commentary on writing and existence. It's just about, it's about the nature of existence too. It's about how to exist and be in the world. And it's really funny and it's certainly as closely connected to me deep down inside of me as Miami Blues is, you know, it's just one of those things that to me feels like, well, that's me. This thing is a reflection of me. When I look at this artwork, I'm looking at myself in some ways. And of course, expanding me and pushing me and all those sort of things you want an artwork to do. Um, in this slot that I was like, I'll give this slot to one of the books that I read over and over again. I, I had a close runner up with Hunting of the Snark, which is the Lewis Carroll poem that I've read over and over and over. But I was actually like, I actually have the first two fits, it's a poem in eight fits, essentially eight chapters. I have the first two memorized. Like I recite them all the time to my son. Like, do I even need the book itself? <laughs> sure, I'd love to look at the Henry Holiday illustrations, but I passed it because it's like, I actually know it too well. Jacques you're, like, you're like one of the drifters at the end of Fahrenheit 451. Exactly. The, li the living book. Exactly. <laughs> Chocolate Fatalist, because it's so digressive and so weird and so unexpected, I, every time I read it, I discover something new or remember something new, you know, like it's just, I think it's inexhaustible. I think it will never be too familiar for me. And even, and there was even a little crime fiction I was trying to think about for this that I was like, maybe I'll pass over that, that I like to read over and over again, but like Pop 1280 or Sideswipe, Friends of Eddie Coyle, Patricia I. Smith's Little Tales of Misogyny, books that I read over and over again, or even some like 
science fiction that's evergreen in that way. You know, like Stanislaw Lim's A Perfect Vacuum. I love just reading over and over. I, it just didn't, it felt like, no, it's clearly got to be Jacques, the fatalist. It's just clearly got to be. It's like what you're saying with what's opera doc, the more I considered the other options, the clearer it had to be this, you know, and a lot of those books too, especially like I mentioned Little Tales of Misogyny, that's such a weird and uglier and indefensible thing that it feels weird to pick like Population 1280 and being like, yep, that's me when it's so ugly. When it's when it's like such a like brutally ugly thing that that again like there's real joy in Jacques Le Fatalist and I think that that's important for me too I think there's real joy in all four of the things I've picked so far although again Watts Opera Doc is just like a concentrated ball of joy (laughs) completely this will make sense to you it's like Nibbler's Poops but of joy that dense John (laughs) the dark matter of joy I get it exactly I think in terms of joy, you know, I completely agree. I think it's the best use of the picaresque format. There are a lot of picaresque books that I love, like uh, Cavato's The Swindler and yeah. uh, Hasek's Good Soldier Spec. You know, there are a lot of them that are just fun to read. Gargantula and Pantagruel, it's the best genre. Yeah, yeah. Oh, of course. And I mean, just there's just so many fun windows to, you know, like you were saying, to go to, into a story within a story, you know, or the Saragossa Manuscripts. So many great oh, yeah. examples of, yeah, just... Uh, that you even, can... even Don Quixote, for... I'd say it's, oh, the yeah. one, it's the one genre where the titans of the genre are actually the best artworks in it. <laughs> yeah, and just to keep it thematically relevant, I will say there is a subplot about a con. So oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we do love the con artists. Uh, art. um, for my fifth selection, again, like I said with television, I will say I'm not a big music guy, mainly because I'm not a musician. You know, I um, can't create music and so I feel like I can't take deep dives into uh, albums and uh, songs the way that I think other people can I think it's just something that I casually enjoy more than anything you know we were saying at the beginning of the episode neither of us are huge music guys but yeah I, I, I definitely feel like you know there are some albums that you know I love obviously that I gotta like have around me I'm gonna just mention the album that to me feels the same way like I would need this album the way I would need like 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 real human emotion, you know, <laughs> like to be close to somebody yeah. I care about. Um, it looks like I kind of just like let it have access to me. And this would be On the Beach by Neil Young. Love this album. And, you know, again, I'm a, I like Neil Young. I'm a big fan, but I feel like nothing he's done has come anywhere near this particular album. And I could talk about how, you know, it came out in 1974, it was coming off of Tonight's the Night, which was his darkest album. You know, it was about death and addiction and whatnot. And, how he's kind of shaken off the negativity in this a little bit. Like it's still tinged in darkness, but it's sort of finding a, a lightness to it at the same time or a resigning, you know, or like a resolution to like that darkness. And that's certainly comforting, but I think more than anything, it's sort of the scaled back production of it. You know, like it was recorded, you know, just with a few guys in a basement. I, I'm not a big fan of, of, of uh, things that, you know, are overproduced and have like a lot of orchestra orchestra and, uh, a lot put into it. I, I think this is exactly my speed. Um, I love the pedal steel of the organ of See the Sky About to Rain, the harmonica on Ambulance Blues. It's like so simple and perfect. Uh, as far as albums that work as albums, you know, not just as a collection of great songs. I love Stevie Wonder's Music of My Mind. I love The Mountain Goat's Sunset Tree. I love Weird Al Yankovic's In 3D. But <laughs> the one that has always 
felt like, yeah, these, this collection of songs needed to be together and they're cohesive in a way that I don't usually think albums are. It's on the beach. It's, John, do you remember, I don't know if you remember this about you, I don't know very much about music at all. This was a very hard to find album for a really long time. It wasn't on CD, it was only on vinyl. And the first I ever heard of this album is anytime you and I would go to a record store, like I remember going to ones in Greenwich Village and, and the East Village in Manhattan back in like 1997, you would always look for this record. It was the record that you were always like, I'm curious about this thing. And do you remember any of this? Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> and so when you got it and hearing you say it now, you and I never talk about music. I can't remember the last time we've talked about music ever. Hearing it on your list now, there's something that's really like, I don't know, it's like really touching and funny to hear this thing was your destiny somehow. I remember we would go in and crate dig and I'd be you know, not really looking for anything in particular. And you would have like a really specific list. And this was like the one you were looking for. And I even remember when you got it, because it was funny because you, it seemed like you never thought you were going to get it at a reasonable price, I think was the other thing too. I think you had like some options like where you could have gotten it for $400, but you found like a kind of banged up version that was like not going to, to knock you out. And just being like, oh, that's good. But I don't know, it's just nice. It's really nice that you connected with it that deeply. It no, feels you're... like destiny. Yo, yeah, you have a great memory. And actually it wasn't a banged up copy what I found. What I finally found it was, it, it was at a used bookstore, it wasn't even a music yeah. store. Yeah. And it was a bunch of, you know, Barbara Streisand, you know, the usual, you know, soundtracks, whatever, all banged up, old stuff, whatever you'd find, like, at a garage sale. This Wasn't was it when we were brand, out on Long Island? Uh, yeah, I think so. It was a brand spanking new, never opened copy of On the Beach. Oh, really? In the middle of all this. Yeah, I got to open it, like, get it out of its, you know, shrink wrap or whatever. And this, like you said, it was before it was reissued on CD. So, yeah, you could just... And, and iTunes wasn't a thing, so it was like before you could even get this album, that's, you know, how I found it. So, yeah, it was a definitely a magical moment. So, yeah, I'm glad you remembered that. Yeah, it's weird. It's funny when we were putting these lists together, I really tried to think of a piece of music or an album that would match my favorite movies and novels. And I really, I really couldn't. I was thinking, this is something I've said to a few friends of mine who are musicians, that, you know, it's weird with me and music. If music stopped existing tomorrow, there were just no more songs anymore. I don't know how long it would take me to notice. It might be like 10 months before I noticed music didn't exist anymore. It's <laughs> yeah. not something that, that matters to me. And I think the reason, it's funny you said you're not a musician. I was always friends with musicians in high school, in college. And I just, I never want to have to go to a live show again. I don't want to have to see anybody's band. I don't want to have to listen to a new album that everybody's crazy for that's just okay, that a year from now they're going to pretend like they didn't love you know, and I just, I, I just get, I don't find the depth to it. Nothing hits me that deep. And it's also I funny, I was way, yeah. a quote about, there's a lot of jazz I listen to, listen to jazz, which A is like lame, but also I don't know whether I'm listening to good jazz or bad jazz at any given moment. I just right. have defined enough sense of any of it. So a lot of the music I listen to is like 
soundscape, you know, uh, atonal, you know, like people dropping pebbles on panes of glass and then <laughs> melting plastic tubes and that sort of thing is the, is the, the, the kind of music I listen to. A lot of uh, Bernard Parmigiani and things like that, you know. Yeah, it's funny too to think of like On the Beach as a singular work. If someone came to me and said, hey, Carl Franklin's going to be screening One False Move, do you want to go see it? It's like, fuck yeah, of course I want to go see that. Uh, whereas if someone said, hey, I got a free ticket to a new old a young concert you want to go i'd be like oh i don't know you know it's like i don't yeah. i don't like connect to that artist in a way that i you know connect with that one very specific work yeah yeah it's hard to think of and i know for a lot of people their list would only be music on there and there's definitely albums i love i don't want to seem like some kind of of uh total monster with it but definitely <laughs> i the stuff i listen to is just like elian radica like <laughs> kind of thing. Um, and I was also trying to think about, too, like, is there a painting or a sculpture or a piece of architecture that I could put on my list? And it's weird because I think, because you have to go to a museum to see it, that mm -hmm. I just can't put Rene Magritte on here. You know what I mean? Like, I just, yeah. you know, or Andrew Goldsworthy or something, like, I can't put that stuff on here, or Andreas Gursky, because it has to be museum bound, the, the art that I really love. Like, if it's in my survival kit, I need to be able to access it immediately, like yeah. exactly yeah. when I want it. I had the so, same thought of like, oh man, I only picked like 20th century artworks, it's gonna make me seem so shallow. Yeah, for the record, it's like, I would love to go to the Prado and check out the Goya anytime. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I feel the same way, it's something that just doesn't feel quite quite as tangible as some of the, uh, you know, things that you really need in your life. Yeah. Yeah. Going to see the Gaudi buildings and the park and the cathedral and stuff in Barcelona is life-changingly amazing. But like, I don't fucking live in Barcelona. <laughs> like I can't yeah. put that on my list when maybe I'll see it again in my life. <laughs> yeah. And looking at photos of it, I feel like doesn't count. That's the other thing is I've always felt strongly like I never understood Jackson Pollock in high school. Our college has a thing that we went to SUNY Purchase Purchase College now has a famous little art gallery on it and I went in and right at the top of the stairs there's a Jackson Pollock and you see them in person it's like holy shit and that's the difference seeing a, a photo reproduction of a Jackson Pollock is nothing like seeing one in person same thing there's a George O'Keefe there and it's like wow I get this now that I'm seeing the actual goddamn painting and not a reproduction of it mm -hmm. so it feels just it feels like some people might be like well you know I want the Rembrandt painting of the angel stopping Abraham from killing Isaac because yeah. I see a reproduction of it. It's like, are you crazy? Have you seen that thing in person and how different it is? Yeah. And so there's a lot of that that makes it hard to pick uh, more traditional fine arts for this. Yeah. I mean, it's a whole different topic too, but I mean, dealing with the hurdles of the art world in terms of like, you know, the insistence of greatness for certain things, you know, it's like, if you like this one thing, you're supposed to like this other thing, you know, and it's yeah. the, the art world in general when it comes to paintings and sculptures is just so, so vast, you know, it's yeah. just, there's, there's so much, it's, it's so much harder to really get a good angle on something as opposed to a film or an album where you engage it at your leisure. <laughs> yeah. If I could pick like, maybe I, that should have been the game I played. Maybe I should have picked Dia Beacon for this. You know what I mean? Maybe my yeah. artwork should have been the Dia Beacon space and then I can go <laughs> see whatever's inside of it. Yeah. Um, but are we, what is it? Is it me? You're up, you're up fifth selection. Steve. Oh, my, my fifth selection. 
this selection is I am picking Lola by Rainer Werner Fassbender from 1982. Uh-huh. Um, it is a film about a musical cabaret singer prostitute played by Barbara Sokawa, who is told essentially by the rich movers and shakers that come there that she cannot seduce the new town, you know, functionary played by Armin Mueller-Stahl because he's so serious and a man like that would never want a woman like her. And so she takes that as sort of a vow to show them that she can, she can win this guy's heart and win this guy over. And again, it's a little bit, we're sticking with the con artist theme and the cons of love and that sort of thing. It's a little bit in the vein of uh, Lady Eve. Since it's Fassbender, it's of course gets cruel and ugly, even as it remains beautiful and sentimental. And truthfully, I also needed a musical. Since I'm not taking Royal Wedding, I'm gonna take Lola for its musical numbers. <laughs> I think I need a musical in my survival kit. But, but more than that, Fassbender is essential to me. I used to say that Fassbender is the only filmmaker that matters. And, you know, I had to get rid of that because Fassbender and Boonwell are the only filmmakers that matter isn't as strong as striking of a statement. Like I obviously don't mean either of them, but Boonwell means as much to me as Fassbender does. But emotionally, morally, politically, intellectually, uh, he is the most important filmmaker in the world in existence, certainly to me. I think that he is has an analysis and critique of the intersection of all those things of sex and politics and race and work and labor and exploitation and love and violence and sentimentality and romance that is correct to me and helps me focus and understand the world around me in a lot of ways. So I had to pick a Fassbender. He's like some of the filmmakers we talked where it's tough because it's like, well, what one do you pick? There's so much of it. You know, he made so many movies a year. Uh, He's a famously prolific filmmaker. He died young, but he still has a massive filmography. So I I was tempted to pick Berlin Alexander Platz's 15 and a half hour TV miniseries because of its massiveness, right? That if I'm picking some Fassbender, let me pick the biggest thing so I have the most of it. And I said, well, that's, you know, there's ones I like more than Berlin Alexander Platz, Merchant of Four Seasons, Satin's Broughton even. Um, I, Marriage Maria Braun is great. Lola is the one that's most personal. And again, I identify with Barbara Sakawa's character so deeply in this movie. She just resembles me spiritually so much that I, I, I love it. I just love this movie. This is a movie that I really, really love. And I think it's beautiful. I think it's one of the most gorgeous movies ever made. It sort of has this uh, pink and green color scheme that's just luscious. And he films Armin Mueller-Stahl's beautiful blue eyes amazingly. And there's big musical numbers like them, these cabaret blowout numbers, uh, strip numbers. And then there's tiny little musical numbers like when they're singing together in the church and praying. And it's just got, it's got so many awesome like smash cut moments where she's just kicking down the doors and, uh, and then going too far. And I think that this is my favorite Fassbender right now. It's, I agree. It's beautiful. It's a wonderful movie. And I'm always going to have a personal fondness for it because it's the uh, film I watched with Jonathan Demi uh, once when he came in to watch, I think he, I think he left early, but he watched like half of it. So I always, uh, 
Like a 24-hour movie marathon, right? That I exactly. Yeah. That you programmed exactly. Yeah. Um, Of course, I showed Lola. Um, it's I, I completely agree too. I think even more so than Flannery O'Connor or Louis Bunuel, it would be impossible for me to pick just one fastbender. He'd make a great case for it, but because he made such a big deal too in interviews about building a house with his films, you know, about each film yeah. serving a specific function, the career of fastbender in general has just got to be the thing. You know, it's so for me, it'd be impossible to pick just one. But Lola is definitely one of the best ones. I absolutely agree with that. Yeah, I mean, it's that's the thing is it's funny on this list. I there's things I omitted because I said, how could I pick? And then with this one, it's like, how can I pick? But I will. There's no consistency to what we're doing here, John. No of consistency. Of now, before we get into our sixth and final selection, just okay. real quick, John, I wanted to hear just real quick, what did it kill you to not include? What's a, like a quick list of things you, you just killed you to not be able to put into your kit that you really agonized over? We've talked about a few of them throughout here, but I'm curious, what did it really kill you to leave out? Ooh, okay. Well, uh, anything from the 70s? Any films from the 70s, I would say? Sorcerer, uh, Payday, Breaking Away. You know, it's just like that's just the best, my favorite decade decade for films right there. Uh, Didn't really get into any science fiction or dark fantasy. I don't, you know, couldn't pick just one Harlan Ellison or... R.A. Lafferty or uh, uh, Gerald Kirscher, Thomas Deitch, Ray Bradbury. Comic books were, you know, I've always been a big thing for me. I love Sergio Aragones and Bill Sienkiewicz. And the work of Chris Ware is just absolutely gorgeous and uh, stuff I need. But I, again, I just, I don't know what I could single out. Uh, avant-garde cinema. We both love Hollis Frampton and George yeah. Kuchar and Michael Snow. Um, Buster Keaton, silent comedy in general, westerns. Uh, Sam Cooke, who's the best singer who ever lived, you know, I don't know how I would put him in a box, you know, in a survival kit and uh, and explain why I love him, but uh, some true fucking dynamite master works of cinema, Lot to Lot, Sunrise, Val Luton, Fritz Lang, Spirit of the Beehive, right? It's uh, Claire Denis. Yeah. That's just like another conversation of like you know what yeah. considered to be like the greatest you know masterworks no Latalande and Spirit of the Beehive that were two that are like why are they not on my list <laughs> they're really they're yeah some of those a lot of what you said especially movie stuff I understand yeah Japanese cinema in general <laughs> or the wrong the wrong trousers you know yeah it's crazy that uh well I don't know what your final selection is that I don't have any Kurosawa on mine is kind of surprising to me in some way. Um, I also thought really hard about, I wanted some classic Hong Kong action cinema on my list. It's sort of spiritually satisfying to me in the same way as the MGM musicals that, that also didn't make the cut. Um, and I, so I thought really hard about having Drunken Master 2 or Yes, Madam or Eastern Condor, something like that on there. Just like, again, these sort of like joy bombs. But I think at the end of the day, for me, I wanted my list to tilt towards films that are spiritually deeper for me. Uh, even though I think the joy of musicals and Hong Kong action cinema is, is deeply spiritual, right? I don't know. I, I guess I just, <laughs> I, I guess I just angled my list towards films that hit me specifically as possible, as deep down inside of me as there is. 
for me, not having Boonwell on there is the hardest. Um, you and I have discussed recently on Flixwise Canada how it's impossible to pick a favorite Boonwell, that there's no one Boonwell. Same thing with Errol Morris, where what's the one that I, I, I pick? I, I, Errol Morris is a filmmaker. I don't think any filmmaker has infected my view of the world as much as him. Maybe Mike Lee, you know? And Mike Lee's another one that, oh, God, how is another year not on there. That survival movie that helps me survive. You know, same, same with Happy Go Lucky. Those are maybe not as two best, but they're movies that help me survive. And yeah, these I, guys are all patrons, patron saves of the big smoke, absolutely. Yeah, and then there's also a few filmmakers that were like, like Claire Denis that makes like overwhelmingly gorgeous, sensual, beautiful art. 35 Rooms was very close to being on my list for that reason. With the exception of Lola, I, I steered away from purely aesthetically overwhelming experiences, you know? Like 35 Rooms is just so tactile, you know? It's so fucking tactile, it's so sensual, it's gorgeous. And I almost... At the last second, almost before we recorded, John, I almost pulled Miami Blues for Killer of Sheep. Because Killer of Sheep, sure. both, these are both to me about work and how, why, how are we our jobs? How do we decide to be who we are? And the sequence where they dance to this bitter earth is like such an essential sequence to me such a gorgeous sequence, such a, a profound sequence. Beautiful. I, I almost pulled Miami Blues for Killer of Sheep. You know, I look at my list and I do say, where's the Eric Romer? Where's the Frederick Wiseman? Where's the Lucretia Martel? Where's the Edward Yang? Where's Clue and Harold and Kumar go to White Castle? It, there's just going to be omissions. But I think I, I did the best I could. Six so, is not a lot to select. You know, what can you do? Yeah. <laughs> so... John, would you like to go first, or do you want me to go first? With the <clears throat> oh, up to you. Uh, but I think I started, so I should go first, so you can go last. Is that the idea? However you want to, John. I'm going <laughs> to let you, I'm going to go let you go last overall. My right. selection is Strozik by Werner Herzog. This is a movie that is inexhaustible to me. This is a movie that would also probably be one of my Desert Island movies. It's an incredible amount of fun and it's enjoyable, but it's also an incredible soul-crushing bummer. <laughs> I think that that's a lot of my artworks that I'm picking, I guess, have that, that are incredibly fun, soul-crushing bummers. This is a movie about, uh, I don't even know how to describe him, a beggar. He's a, a mentally ill guy played by Bruno S, like a, a, a busker who plays his accordion for money, who has to flee Berlin with a woman who's a prostitute and this elderly gentleman and come to America and they go to Wisconsin and it's about them this trio of very strange people trying to adjust to America and then the woman played by Ava Mattis eventually leaves them and it's just about this is a movie that's just about about Bruno S falling apart, about life falling apart, about just it's a movie about not being able to get it together. You know, it's very consciously about being trapped inside the deeply weird delusional American dream, about being trapped inside rip-off scam mortgages for trailer homes and working a blue-collar job in the middle of these windswept plains that are somehow both muddy and frozen. It's just, it's a movie that's about how fucking hard it is to be. And it's really funny and it's really charming. 
And, uh, and you know, what is there to say about it, John? It's one of those movies I know so well that I don't have a lot to say about it. You know, when Terrence Rafferty, he wrote this amazing essay on rules of the game. So I invited him to come to the theater I program and introduce rules of the game. And he had always been a great guest. We had had him a few times before and he came and he did this talk after rules of the game and introduced it. And it was terrible. This talk was terrible. And it's because he just knew the movie too well. And it sort of said to himself all he had to say about it. And I, in a funny way, I feel that way about Strozek, where all I have to say about it is, go see it. You know, if you haven't seen Strozek, see it, and then look at me and you'll understand. But that's <laughs> all there is, that all is, there is, all there is to it. No one can stop the dancing chicken. No one can stop the dancing chicken, John. No, it's about the way in which life programs us to be an automaton, and something as joyful as dancing becomes something we do for a pellet of money. You know, and how do you get that joy back? You know, how do you, how do you break free from everything that wants to crush you in this world. How do you do it? Is it possible? Or do you just ride the great ski lift to nowhere? This is uh, this movie, this is my favorite movie, Strozak. Yeah. Um, in, in that, uh, you know, if I'm around a normal person, I'll tell them my favorite movie is Big Trouble in Little China or Duel, whatever. But if, uh, you know, I'm around a person who I know is my kind of person, I will tell them Strozak is my favorite movie. It's a film that connects me to to you, to our friends, Marcus Penn and Eric Frender, you know, to people who are my kind of people. Who yeah. I, know, I know what they're looking for in great art. They're looking for Strozek. Um, we're all looking for Strozek the same way that the characters Strozek are looking for where they're supposed to be. I feel like Strozek, you'll find it if, like, you know, you're seeking greatness in cinema, that's where you're going to find. It's interesting because we used to defend Herzog uh, to all the Fassbender people I remember back in the day. You know, like yeah. a lot of people would say, Herzog's a clown and Fassbender is where it's at. And we'd be like, no, 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 Herzog, Strozek, yeah. that's where it's at. Like you Fassbender fucks. Because yeah. we hadn't seen a bunch of Fassbender movies at that point. Yeah. Um, but it's good to know that like as much as Fassbender now feels so much more important than Herzog, especially when you consider his late career clownishness, there's, there's always room. There's always room for Strozek and Lola. You know? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It is weird, too, because uh, nobody's harder on Herzog now than I am. I don't like this late career turn where he's a human cartoon. In the, in the late 90s, when his stuff was getting rediscovered on VHS, he was very out of fashion. And I remember having conversations with people, especially like great, the great Greg Taylor, a professor at SUNY Purchase, where he was very dismissive of Herzog. And I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. I sort of couldn't understand it. Now seeing what he's become, you can see exactly what happened to him before, where he just embraces the cartoonishness of himself so much that if you're trying to be serious about his art, he makes it hard for you, you know, yeah. and he's become the patron saint of, oh, it's crazy cinephiles, you know, which is my least favorite kind of cinephile, but like, oh, it's so weird panting dudes about whatever bullshit he's, he's gotten himself into this time. Yeah. Like, just not, not what I'm about at all. And so sometimes it's easy for me to forget how much I love Strozek or Lessons of Darkness or Agare or, or uh, Wojciech. He has many movies that I really, really love deeply. Land of Silence and Darkness, any, any number of amazing films, La Souffrere, especially his documentaries, are still really special, amazing movies. And Strozek is not... You know, it feels like an appropriate choice for me for my survival kit. It's not a masterpiece. 
It's not a movie that's insisting it's a work of genius. It's not a movie about pulling the boat over the mountain as much as I love Fitzcarraldo. It stars a street musician. (laughs) Yeah. And it's, and it's about, and it's a movie that's wandering and it's a movie that is about wandering both towards things profound and ridiculous. And it's really willing to wander into sequences like where they try and rob the grocery store. That's hilarious or wander into sequences like where he finds the rest stop with the dancing chickens. <laughs> and I just, I think it's such a searching, exploratory movie that you feel that every time you w- you're with it, that it's a movie that invites you to explore the world around you and to keep exploring existence. And for me, that makes it completely uh, essential. Perfect. I agree. And I read something about Flannery O'Connor recently, actually, that kind of ties her into Strozek in my mind. Yeah. When she was a kid, she raised a frizzled chicken. <laughs> feathers back that grow backwards. Whoa. She taught it to walk backwards, and it became so famous in the area. A New York-based newsreel crew uh, who uh, specialized in natural phenomenon heard about it and came down to film her in her home, yeah. which she, she says was an experience that marked her for life. Whoa. Yeah. So I wonder I always if that think, footage still exists somewhere. I oh my god, can you imagine? Can you imagine Franny O'Connor's backwards walking frizzled chicken footage? <laughs> there's there's probably somebody who destroyed that footage in like nineteen eighty two to make space for like gong show outtakes. We gotta clear out the library. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure. But uh, I like to think that Flannery O'Connor's Frizzled Chicken and Werner Herzog's Dancing Chicken, you know, are up there in the same immortal sky of art (laughs) together. Uh, The one thing I'd say it's surprised uh, uh, didn't make it into your submissions is uh, Melville. Oh, yeah. Uh, Melville, Herman Melville. Herman or Jean-Pierre, but man, Herman Melville I was talking to. Yeah, Herman Melville is somebody that's really important to me. Those books are tough, and there's not necessarily enough humor in them for me. He's he's somebody where my relationship to him is deep and fraught. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. I don't know. It's like, pick the people you love most in the world. You're going to pick your mom and dad regardless of what your relationship is with them. And that's me with Herman Melville. (laughs) I, I, to say I love Moby Dick and the Confidence Man and Benito Sereno, to say I love those things is true, is very true. But it's also, it's a fight and it's a struggle with it, you know? And maybe I should have had something like that on there. But he didn't, he, he was somebody I thought of but didn't seriously consider. Okay. Fair so, enough. John, but that's but you're true to to for me to not be on there. That is a notable omission, John. For you, I have no guess what is in your sixth slot since you went through some of your omissions. I was going to guess payday actually for your sixth slot, but that <laughs> it's not on there. No, it's not. I do love payday. Uh, it's kind of more of an outside choice uh, and something that I actually don't have much to say about because I want to write something about something really large and important about someday. Yeah. It's another movie. It's A Bucket of Blood. Oh, whoa. Roger Corman, 1959. This is a film that really speaks to me. I mean, besides being, you know, like a great beat, one of Corman's great beat horror movies that is uh, as funny as it is, you know, grotesque and, and enjoyable. Uh, it's a film all about art, you know, and about being an artist and what an artist is 
it takes a very funny look at the art world through this little art cafe that it's set in. Uh, Dick Miller plays a character named Walter Paisley, who is a waiter at this art, uh, this uh, very beatnik underground arts bar, and is enamored by all the beat poets and the painters who come there every day and talk about art from, you know, the beginning, the first coffee to the last. It's clear that, that Walter is very much outside of this world. He's just a fussy little guy, very socially awkward fellow, um, and talentless, you know, just he's a, yeah. he's a waiter. Yeah. He's, so, he's so distracted, you know, by, you know, his appreciation of all this art going on around him, even the most pretentious and ridiculous art that, you know, he has to constantly be reminded by his boss to clear tables. It says a lot about me, I'm sure, that Walter Paisley is one of the characters I identify with immediately because I'm constantly in awe of people who are fantastic filmmakers, painters, musicians, writers, you know, that I just could never attain that level. And, you know, I'm just constantly looking outside, looking in at these things. Um, Of course, the movie, you know, takes this very... (laughs) Uh, extreme turn where Walter ends up accidentally uh, well first he murders uh, kills a cat by mistake but then ends up murdering people and turning them into sculptors uh, which of course are beloved by everyone and he is accepted into this art community but again it's you know it's yeah John you say you're not talented but have you turned to murder yet I don't think you I don't <laughs> that's think the that's, that's, that's the next step that's the next step you haven't searched every every corner of your artistic psyche for it. Well, I think that's what's so great about this film is that it's, you know, equating art and death in a way that's interesting. It's equating art with like this all-consuming thing that I really, you know, am interested in as a theme and agree with. People, you know, treasure art to a point of death, you know, that they are willing to die for their art or kill for art. And it's especially interesting coming from Corman, you know, as this very legit are a filmmaker, you know, this very legit artist himself, but who obviously is thought of more as, you know, uh, a businessman or a hack. hack. Fodder yeah. to be made fun of by Movie Goofs podcasts. Exactly, exactly. And he's not completely innocent of that, of course, but um, <laughs> he obviously is uh, a great director as well in his own right. And uh, can create something like A Bucket of Blood, which again is a very, very funny movie, very darkly funny film with Dick, the great Dick Miller, obviously. We love Dick Miller. Um, fantastic performance. And uh, just these ideas, again, about arts, you know, when the very loud, boisterous poet says, you know, the, the uncreative might as well go to their grave or the army. Ah, I feel that way all the time, right? Why, why, sir, why live? Why go through life if you can't be creative, if you can't put something out in the world that's going to be meaningful, you know? Might as well go into the army at that point. Uh, even though it's coming from this complete blowhard who is, you know, a hack by himself, but just like a more, a, a hack with deeper conviction. Yeah. With the, who believes that he is talented and therefore can convince other people that he is. So this barely hour-long film yeah. This has all these great ideas about, you know, the yeah. art world, the art community, and... It's a movie that, of it. yeah, that's really about the mystery of why some people believe in their own fucking talent so much. Uh-huh. When yeah. I watch it, that it's like, it's totally mysterious why some people think none of the work they do is good, and some people are just convinced they're so fucking talented. It's so it's, strange, because there's absolutely. no relationship to the quality of their work. Absolutely. It's the kind of film, too, where anytime you ever hear anybody diving into a, a, a film, giving their impression of it and saying why they love it. You know, you just want to be like, or get defensive about the objectivity of appreciating an artwork. You just want to say, 
watch this movie guy, you know, yeah. like these people like see these, the frozen murdered face of, you know, a cop that, that Walter kills and turns into a sculpture and they have all these things that they think it's about that they yeah. think Walter was putting into it, which obviously they weren't. It's just a dead body. Yeah. Um, and so but it's also it's not strictly post- satire too. It's also like, there is something powerful about the artworks. Absolutely. Not, yes. And to articulate it wrong is interesting. Well, exactly. Exactly. It's not, doesn't have, you know, does not trying to convince you one way or the other, but yeah, yeah. it just is an interesting conversation that Corman uh, puts throughout this film. So it's yeah. a film that, that I love to watch. And again, in an hour long, can watch anytime. Yeah, and uh, it's very good, uh, John Cribbs movies out there. Yeah, yeah, very John. There is. I was surprised it was your selection, but there is no surprise that it was your selection. You know what I mean? <laughs> like it is. It's not. I wouldn't have guessed, but when you say it, it's like, of course, that is a very John Cribbs movie too. That I assume. oh yeah, hundred percent. And it's it's one I I like I, I like quite a bit as well. But I think you've articulated what's good about it. You know I. Just before we run down our selections again and go through them, I was surprised that now that we're done, neither of us picked any Joe Dante. It's weird that The Burbs isn't on either of our lists in a little bit. Yeah. I also was surprised. I I know you've, not that you've outgrown him a little bit, but you've grown away from it a little bit, that Blue Velvet wasn't on your list. You know? I strongly consider putting Blue Velvet on my list. Yeah, Blue Velvet I considered too, but he's one of those filmmakers that I feel like belongs to other people way more than he belongs to. Well, that's one thing I thought of too in this list is like, you know, I'm I'm very sensitive about being proprietary, overly proprietary about artwork these days, you know? Yeah, Yeah, and there are so many people who just want to say, I liked this movie before anybody else did. And it's just like, I discovered this movie that millions of people have already seen. Exactly, exactly. But no, yeah, Blue Velvet, I, I think I definitely consider, for the same reasons that you probably omitted uh, Texas Chainsaw, you know, that's uh, something that, you know, is will stir something up in you for sure. Yeah. Whether it's something that will get you moving from one day to the next is questionable. Yeah. Um, but as a powerful artwork and one of the greatest films ever made, it's there's no question. And on, the, on, the, on, a, on a similar note, I was also really surprised that there's nothing on your list like Celine and Julie go boating or, you know, Mulholland Drive. Because I really associate that kind of cinema with you. Um, surreal travelogues like Godard's Weekend or Phantom of Liberty. I was surprised nothing like that. Was there one of those type of movies that was close to being on your list? There was always a possibility that something like Pretty Poison was going to be on the list, you know? Oh, I don't mean that. I mean, like, those, those trap, like, Weekend, like Godard's Weekend or Celine and Julie Go Boating, where people sort of wander across these semi-surreal landscapes. Yeah. You love that kind of movie, whether you're aware of it or not. Phantom of Liberty or The Milky Way. I do love those kind of movies and any that could have been on the list. Um, I, I think it was back sort of the picaresque novels, you know, that... Uh, yeah. That I love that uh, just love that loose kind of structure with you know following interesting characters and delving into interesting subplots throughout. I don't know what, which one I would pick though. Yeah, that's yeah. Uh, not and, something uh, I would know for sure. Where's Blood and Blood Out Bound by Honor, John? <laughs> blood no. and Blood Out Bound by Honor does not need my help in getting put into anybody's canon. But do you need its help, John? That's what this <laughs> list is about. You know what? They, and I'll just say this just to be done with the surprises. Really surprises me that neither of us had Second Breath or Band of Outsiders on our list. That yeah. somehow surprises me that, that Jean-Pierre Melville's Second Breath or Jean-Luc Godard's Band of Outsiders didn't end up on one of right, or, or Donald Westlake, since we're talking about, you know, the, uh, the, the origins. Very close. The yeah. origins of our, our kids' names, for one thing. Yeah. 
Um, <laughs> those are obviously very close, but you got six selections. What are you going to do? Yeah. John's <laughs> daughter's is name is named Odeal after Band of Outsiders, and my son Parker is named Parker after Donald Westlake's Parker books. Band of Outsiders is definitely something that, you know, on the one hand, you feel like, well, then I got to talk about Dard, who, if I'm being <laughs> honest, you know, after the 60s, I'm not such a huge fan of. He's just, um, an, I don't want to talk about him anymore. Right. He's just a filmmaker that's like, yeah, I love, I love like seven of his movies. I don't want to think about him. Go away, dude. Give it up, granddad. <laughs> so let's run it down. What, get, remind us, what were your six selections, Chris? My six selections were Miami Blues from George Armitage in 1990, Laughable Loves, the short story collection from Milan Kundera, published in 1969, The Lady Eve, directed by the great Preston Sturges and released in 1941. Jacques La Fataliste by Denis Diderot, published in 1796. Lola by Rainer Werner Fassbender from 1982. And Werner Herzog Strozek from 1997. That is a, that, I stand by that going through it. And John. Why not Dracula's Pajama Party? <laughs> Have you ever heard that Dr. Dre song that's about the, like, the Wolfman's birthday party? <laughs> You should listen to it. I've just found it, or found it was turned on to it recently. And, uh, <laughs> okay, and what are your six, sir? My six were One False Move, directed by Carl Franklin, came out in 1992. Cosmic Comics, written by Italo Calvino, 1965. Futurama, the TV series, which ran originally from 1999 to 2003, and then uh, was revived in 2007 to 2013. Uh, my fourth pick was What's Opera Doc, directed by Chuck Jones, 1957. Uh, my fifth was Neil Young's album On the Beach from 1974. And my last pick was A Bucket of Blood, directed by Roger Corman. And it came out also in 1959. Well, this is a, a good uh, exercise. Or certainly, I think it was fun. Definitely I lots of fun. wanted to, once again, thank our Patreon subscribers for subscribing to the show and being a listening and supporting us for uh, since from the beginning, it's been great to have that support. I will remind you that the show for new listeners who have just made their way through this primer, it's two episodes a month. Both episodes will initially be, on, be behind a Patreon paywall on the 15th of each month. An old episode, at least three months old, will be released to the general public. So our Patreon subscribers get one exclusive episode a month and early access to a second episode every single month. And Thank you guys for subscribing and listening. Thanks, everybody. It's been fun, and we'd love feedback. If uh, you want to contact us through the website or leave comments on our Patreon page, let us know what artworks would be in your survival kit. We'd be curious to know. What, yeah. What makes you, what, what gets you from one day to the next? In the that, was, that was super awkward, John, but I co-sign on the sentiment. When <laughs> you and I try to speak to an audience and be pandering like a regular radio-style show, we're terrible at it. That is, <laughs> this is for your primer. That is the pink smoke signature, being terrible at the podcasting bullshit. <laughs> we hope you enjoy that. Uh, thank you, Patreon subscribers. Thank you, new listeners. Uh, join us for the next time when we're going to talk about a new movie. So, think about, about Jim Wynorski standing outside that building waiting for that actress who never shows up a lot.